Uh, Father God, we just want to come before you today, uh, before we, we open your word and just ask you, uh, like we sang, um, to be here amongst us. Lord, we pray that, uh, that you encourage each of us to engage with the words of Scripture we're going to look at today and take them seriously and make a choice uh, to walk closer with you, whether it be through uh, relationships like, like Ellie was just talking about or whether it be um, whatever, whatever step you might be calling us towards, Lord, we pray that we can hear your voice, that you can encourage us where we need to be encouraged and we can be convicted where we need to be convicted. Ultimately, may, may everything we do this morning be to glorify you. Amen. All right, so for, if you haven't been with us a lot lately, we have been working through the book of Matthew. We'll be there for the next, uh, next year. We'll be there to the end of this year. Um, and we've spent the last few, mount, last few months working through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, this long teaching of Jesus at the beginning of the book of Matthew. And this week, we finally come to the end of that section. So we've been, we've been looking at one of, the, one of Jesus' greatest teachings, and it's all been building towards this last bit we're going to look at today. We've talked about a lot of different things as we progressed through the Sermon on the Mount. We talked, first, we began with his declaration right before he starts the sermon. Uh, the very first words of preaching he gives are, are the, is a phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is all around you. And we talked about how that's one of the keys to understanding the entirety of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. That there's this, that, that, that the kingdom of God is at our fingertips if we have eyes to see it. Uh, and Jesus is constantly calling us in this space to turn towards that, turn towards that kingdom kind of life, the life that brings flourishing. We talked about how the Sermon on the Mount begins with just a declaration of value, that each of you have value, that all of us have value. Those of us that don't think we have value, we do. And because of that, then Jesus goes on to instruct us on how to live the kind of lives that are compatible with the kingdom life, the kind of life that actually allows us to experience that kingdom on a day-to-day basis. And so that then brings us to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of this long message, Jesus puts it all out on the line. Um, and we're going to read it today. So it's in Matthew 7.13. So if you're following along with us, we're going to be in Matthew 7.13. I'm going to read a large section and then we'll go back and take it bit by bit. So the Sermon on the Mount ends this way. Matthew 7.13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by, your, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me that on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out all demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. 
The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. Now, I don't know about you, but Jesus makes some really hard statements in, the, in these sections and they can be a little, little scary to us sometimes. They were to me, I know, for a good portion of my life. Without the context of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, these statements feel so conclusive, so big, it's so difficult to deal with that it, that it really makes it feel like it's impossible to do what Jesus, is at, Jesus has asked. Right? I know that these verses have scared a lot of Christians over the years. They've, they've forced them to ask questions, what if I'm on the wide road? Am I going to be destroyed? Or what if I'm not bearing good fruit? Am I going to be cut off? What if I get to the end of my life thinking I did the right things and Jesus looks at me and says, hey, I never knew you? What if you built your house on the sand? It's a wrestling I think a lot of us have and it can create a, this big fear space in many of us. See, when we read the Bible as a series of disconnected maxims or sayings, things get tricky quickly and, this, and the, ch the chapters and the verses sometimes in the Bible can be really unhelpful to us. Because instead of reading something as a whole, we just take it in these small little bites. And so often we do that with the Sermon on the Mount too. It's almost impossible to understand what Jesus is saying here if we don't remember that this is the conclusion of a very, very long series of teachings. Each part building upon the last, all heading in a particular direction. It's really, really important whenever we get to these spots where we, where we get worried or nervous to, to look back at where we've been so we can understand what these hard things that are, are that Jesus is saying. Now, to be clear, what, what, when we get to the end, we'll realize that he is saying some pretty difficult things, some pretty hard things, but they're not nearly as terrifying as they appear on first glance. So what I want to do now is take each of those sections uh, and see what Jesus is building for, towards, each of those sections on their own. Let's just start with Matthew, 13, Matthew 7, 13, where it says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. Now, so often, I think, because we're disconnected from the context that Jesus is speaking in, we don't realize that often he's using metaphors that really relate to the people that he's talking to, and that's the case here as well. We don't, we don't relate to the metaphors as well because we don't live in the Middle East. We also don't understand what it would, life would have been like there. But he's using examples that they would understand directly from their day-to-day -day lives. Now, before we talk about what, the, what this particular metaphor means, we have to remember, like we've already said, that Jesus has been challenging us to live kingdom kind of lives. He's, he's worked to show us that there's a better way out there to do things than, than the way that normally we do. And so now he lays out a choice for people. He says there's a narrow road or a broad road. And what he's doing is he's playing on an understanding that his listeners would have understood because at the time of Jesus, Rome ruled the world. We've talked about that a lot over the, over the last few months here at Harbor Life. Rome ruled the world, and they were the, they were the powerhouse of the day. They controlled trade, they controlled the military might, they controlled the governing power, all of that thing. And Rome was particularly good at a number of things. One of which was torture, unfortunately, but the other one was building roads, right? Um, even today, if I were to say the phrase, all roads lead to where? Rome, right? It's a, it's a phrase we still use pretty often because Rome was exceptionally good at building roads. They realized that if they were going to have a vast empire that covered a wide portion of the known world, they're gonna, they would need to have reliable transportation to maintain it. Whenever you conquer large areas of the world, the hardest thing is to keep people from revolting. 
And the only way to do that is to be able to move troops and supplies and have vibrant trade regularly. And so Rome built roads all over the place. And they built them in these big, wide ways. I actually think we have a slide with a picture of one of these Roman roads. There it is. It's not up on the back. So you have these wide roads that are paved, that are, that are easy to walk down. <clears throat> Roma, um, and so what that, what that did is it allowed for easy transportation. It also was the safest way to travel as well because the Roman, Roman soldiers would patrol these roads to make sure that you didn't get mugged, that you didn't get robbed, that nothing happened to you while you were on the big, wide Roman road. Most people would travel on those roads. But there were other roads, too. We want to throw up the next slide here. There was a way, uh, so all of these wide roads would lead to Rome, but there were other roads that would lead to different things, too. This is a a pathway called um, the Jericho Road. Um, And the Jericho Road was a way to get from Jericho to Jerusalem, and it looked very, very different than the big, wide Roman roads. Actually, if you throw up the next slide here, the Jerusalem Road, when you're traveling, it looks more like that. So we had two different kinds of, of roads in this, in, in this time, li- time frame. You had the big, wide Roman roads, which were safe, which were patrolled by Roman troops, which were paved, which were wide, which you could walk on really easily. And then you had roads like this. Now, this is the Jericho Road. Uh, it was le- led from Jericho to Jerusalem. Um, and as you can see, uh, it's not very wide. Uh, it's actually really thin. There are portions of it, I'm told, because um, we have some pastors who've walked this road before. There are portions of it that you go single file and you're basically on the edge of that particular road. It's not an easy one to walk. You're stepping over rocks. You're trying to find your way through it. And unfortunately, because as you can see, there's nooks and crannies all the way through there, um, there are a lot of places for people to hide, right? So on the Roman roads, you, you don't get mugged because there's Roman soldiers there. There's not places to hide On the Jericho Road, you might. Um, It's actually where the story of the Good Samaritan is told, right? So it's it's a harder road to walk. It's more dangerous. It's it's trickier. Uh, All of those things go into the 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 Jericho Road road. So what Jesus is doing here is he's comparing those two kinds of roads to help us understand what it looks like to live in that society. Right? Rome represents the world. Roman culture permeated everything, permeated everything. They were the empire. There was a Roman way of doing things. And in many ways, doing things the Roman way was easier. It made trade easier. It made culture easier. The Roman way seemed easier. And so many people just took that, whether it was walking on an actual road or just doing things the way Rome did it. To not push back against that big system was the easier way of doing things. But what Jesus is saying is if you choose that way, it's not, he's not necessarily saying don't walk on the Roman roads, but he's saying if you choose the Roman way of life, that's where you'll get. That that road will lead to Rome, which in what he said throughout the Sermon on the Mount as well, is leads to destruction. Because though the Roman way was easier in many cases, it was really depraved culture. It wasn't the godly, kind of, godly way of life. On the other hand, Whereas the wide road leads, uh, Roman culture leads in that direction, the Jerusalem road, the Jericho road, might be narrow, might be harder, but it doesn't take you to Rome, it takes you to God, is what, is what the metaphor is trying to say. Though he contrasts this wide, easy way of walking with this smaller, harder way of walking. One, though, leads to life, the other to destruction. Which leads right into the next part of what he's saying. 
Matthew 5, 17, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you'll recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear good fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by your fruit, you'll recognize them. So because the Roman way of doing things was easier, it cost, you, it cost you to push back on Rome. They made sure of that. There were many who argued, why do things differently than Rome? Why not just give in to that way of life? If God put us here, he must want us to live that kind of way, right? It, we have a phrase for it. When in Rome, you do what? You do as the Romans do, right? It's just the way of life. It's the way how we, how we do things, which is why Jesus gives this warning. There have always been people in church who argue for a particular way of doing things, and sometimes very, very persuasively. They'll just say, why would we push back against the world in any of these ways? And Jesus calls them then a wolf in sheep's clothing. They look like a prophet. They look like a follower of Jesus. They talk like one, and, even some, and maybe even in some parts of their lives, they act like one. But I'm sure we all know people who talk the walk, who've gone through all the motions, but their lives are crumbling around them, right? That as you watch them, you realize you're doing all of the right things. You're going to church, you're praying, you're saying the right things, and yet there's a part that when you really get the chance to look behind the curtain, you realize the fruit's not there. Or maybe, it's, maybe religion has become the way they can control others. Maybe you've met someone like that. Maybe it's become a real weird hybrid between the Roman way and the Jesus way. Unfortunately, we've seen that too. Maybe, your faith, maybe the faith is just watered down and situational. What Jesus gives us here is really a two-sided warning. It's a call for us to look at ourselves. Are there areas in our lives where we think we're following Jesus but aren't bearing any fruit? My guess is we probably all have some of those. I know I do. But it's a challenge of Jesus then to say that's probably a time to reevaluate those sections. Am I, are the things I'm doing actually bringing me closer to Jesus or closer to other people or are I just doing it because I think I'm supposed to? But also we have to ask the question, are there people in our lives who are influencing how we walk or how we talk but their lives or, or in our lives aren't producing good fruit? Perhaps it's time then to reevaluate their advice as well. See, there are people, who, people in the world who do and say all the right things and yet don't actually have a relationship with Jesus at all. Which is what I think Jesus is talking about when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. Like I said, I know this passage has caused anxiety for some Christians over the years. It's made them question, what if I'm following Jesus but then get sent away when I stand before him in heaven? Could we think we're following him our whole lives only to come, only to, come to find that we did it all wrong and then be sent to hell? So we, again, we've got to go back and remember that this comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has been talking the whole time about the kingdom of heaven. And we've said, as we've said so many times throughout this series, 
he's not talking primarily about the place we go when we die. It's really, really easy to misunderstand the Sermon on the Mount if we think he's only talking about eternity after death. We've said it over and over again. I know it sounds like a broken record, but I want to make sure that we get this part. He's talking about experiencing the kingdom here and now. So what he's saying then in this particular passage, he's saying that it's possible to come to church and sing the songs, to say the prayers, and still not know Jesus at all. In other words, it's possible to do all the things and completely miss the kingdom. And I think it's good for all of us just to sit with that for a little for a minute. You see, the church in America has been declining for almost 100 years. Church attendance is almost is at an all-time low right now. Skeptic, skepticism of Christians and of Jesus is at an all-time high. Why? I think it's because for a long time, many of us were satisfied with just going through the motions, checking the boxes. And so as a result, we weren't even experiencing the kingdom. And so the, the message that we gave wasn't very compelling. It was, here, come join me for this series of rules that I want you to follow. And as generations changed, they looked at us and gone, why would I want that? And to be fair, that's a good question, isn't it? Why would I want to be part of this thing where I just got to be, do all the right things so that people will accept me? We didn't produce any fruit. We were satisfied with the wide road, the way that everybody else did things. I was actually talking with a very wise young man this past week who's asking a ton of really great questions about his faith and how, it inter- how to interact in this, in this world. And it's interesting because when you talk to people like that, they're able to grab the, uh, a picture of where the church is in a better way than a lot of us can. It was really convicting, actually. We were talking about how to read the Bible because he rightly realized that just picking up the Bible and reading it is really hard, right? We just need to all acknowledge that. I think sometimes we think it's easy. You just pick it up and do it, but it's not because the more you wrestle with it, the more you realize there's some really confusing parts in there. Now, there are easier parts, but a lot of it is really hard, and we can acknowledge that. And so we talked about how so many people end up using the Bible as a weapon then, that we misunderstand it and we use it as a way to control people or to hurt people or to exclude people or whatever it might be, very, very much against what it was meant to do. We take a verse here or there to justify what we're doing or what we believe without wrestling with what it's actually saying to us. And so to kind of paraphrase what he said, he asked, well, how do we understand it then? And I gave an answer I thought was okay. I just said that's why we need each other. We need to wrestle with it together, that we need to bounce ideas off of each other. And then he, he kind of called it to the floor. He says, but, but if those who have been part of the church for a long time aren't actually wrestling with it themselves, if they aren't wrestling with the hard things that Scripture says, how in the world can they help me? Um, dang, right? Sometimes students get it better than we do. As he looks at the church, he was able to see some of us haven't actually done the hard work it takes to understand what the scripture has to say to us. And so how in the world are we supposed to help our younger people understand the good news of Jesus? I think some of the reason the skepticism around the church is so high is because for a long time we just went to church each week. We said, don't I go to church every week? Don't I read my Bible every morning? Don't I do all the things? And yet we can do all of those things and still not know Jesus at all. 
We can do all of those things and still miss the kingdom completely. And as a result then, when times get tough, we get exposed. Which is how Jesus ends the entire sermon. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Now, this image is a great one. But it's also one I don't know if, we, if I had a great understanding of until we really delve into it this week. Let's just start with what he's talking about here. He starts with sand. Or he starts with rock, but we'll start with sand. When most of us think about sand, what do we think about? I don't know. I personally think about Lake Michigan because it's got some of the best sand in the world, right? We got a picture of some Lake Michigan sand here, right? Those beaches, there's nothing, there's nothing be- better than just sitting on one of those, right? It's some of the best sand in the world. But when I think of building a house in the sand, this was the image I had in my mind. If it wasn't this, it was the next slide, which is just the Sahara Desert, right? This, these big swaths of sand. But it's very likely when Jesus is talking of sand, he's not talking about this kind of sand at all because that's not how the sand is in Israel. Uh, it's a lot different. More likely, he's talking about a, a dried-up wadi bed. So I've got a couple of videos here I want to show you, and I'll talk over them while we put them up. But the first one, a wadi bed in the, summer, in the, in the dry season is very, very dry. You can see that it's flat, it's hard. Um, you can actually see that it's actually pretty clear. Um, I want to pause the video just a second. What you can see is like in, in that middle section there, uh, in the middle of dry season, that, that might not even be a terrible place to put a house, right? The ground's already cleared for you. It's already flat. Uh, it, it, you might look at it and go, I could go on either side there, but I'd have to move a bunch of rocks and do a lot more work to get it done. Um, and that might be then a great place, you might think, to, to build um, your, your, your particular house. And honestly, in the dry season, it might be, but no one does because eventually the dry season ends and then this is what happens. So if you can see here, all of a sudden, uh, when the rains come down, all of a sudden that nice dry spot that you had that was flat and hard um, becomes a river. And it can go from dry to river in almost no time. It's kind of a crazy picture, isn't it? And sometimes when the rains come down as well, let's flip to the next one. So that kind of slowly crept its way in, but that's not always the way that it goes. I wanted to use two different images because this one doesn't have the nice flat one the other one did, so I couldn't make that point off this video. But it does show the power sometimes in which the water will come down. The rains come, the storms blow, and that is what you see. So if you imagine that you had built your house on that nice flat sandy place, and then this comes down at you, what's going to happen to your house? It's not going to last long. Because that will sweep you right away. It will sweep your house away too. This is most likely what Jesus is talking about when he says, when the rains come, those who built it on the sand would be washed away. Everybody would have realized that a wise person definitely does not build their house in a dry wadi bed because this kind of thing can happen. So what Jesus is talking about is this. The wadi seems easier than the ground around it at first. But when trouble comes, your error becomes clear very quickly, right? 
It feels great when, there's, when you're in the dry season. It was easier to build. You didn't have to move as much stuff. You have a nice flat ground. And then the rain comes, and all of a sudden you go, uh-oh, I'm done for, right? You're getting run over by a wall of water. Actually, in the dry season, both of those places even look similar. Yet the outcome is dramatically different. The difference between the safe place to build and the, dry, and the unsafe place to build is only a matter of a few feet. The point that Jesus is trying to make is that going through the motions may work when things are calm. It's probably easier, it's probably easier place to build your faith life, but if we don't wrestle with the difficult things, when trouble comes, it all falls apart. My guess is there's some of you here that have already experienced that at one point in time or another. That you thought you had everything in your faith life put into the right boxes, put in the right order, and then the rains did come and you realize, I don't know what I have left. Has anyone experienced that before? Got a few hands that went up. I have, myself. It was, a, it was actually, when I was, my college life was that way. I, I came out of my high school um, and went into college. I've told this story here before, so I'll do it briefly. With the idea that I was going to change the world, that I had all the answers I needed, that my faith was, faith was all intellectual and I could argue or beat anyone in that. And then I ran into the storms. Ran into a guy who was able to talk to the Bible frontwards and backwards better than I could, and I had, he beat me in the argument. Like, I've actually never been beaten that badly before. And all of a sudden, I, in, in that storm, along with a bunch of other things that were going on in my life, I, I had to ask myself the question, what, I, what do I have left in my faith life? Because I had built it in a wadi bed, and then the storm came. If you've been there, I'm sorry. It's a really hard place to be. It causes a lot of pain. It can be really confusing. See, the way of Jesus is the best way to live, but it's not the easiest. It's the narrow way. It's often, hard, it's often the harder path, the one that feels more dangerous, which is why few find it. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been telling his listeners that the kingdom of heaven is all around them. To a crowd of people who sat around him disillusioned, hurting, feeling valueless or frustrated or hopeless, Jesus makes the amazing declaration that there's something more out there for them. There's something more amazing than they can even understand right at their fingertips. The actual kingdom of God is right there if they could see it. But he closes this way. If they want to experience it, though, it's going to require them to make a choice. He's saying, will they, act will they actually follow Jesus or not? See, Jesus' teachings constantly amaze me because he has such a deep understanding of how people work that makes his words timeless. He spoke the words we read today nearly 2,000 years ago, and yet we face the exact same challenges, don't we? Along with the same opportunities. We sit here this morning surrounded by opportunity. Jesus' declaration of the kingdom being all around us is just as true today as it was when the words were originally spoken. But so is the other things that he said as well. The road that leads to life is narrow. And that's something that we all need to wrestle with. See, it's easy at this point to fall into one of two traps. First, because we, we say the road is narrow, so then we need to set up a bunch of rigid structures to make sure that we stay on the straight and narrow. We've got to make sure that we keep boundaries on the road so that we don't, we don't wander off it or someone else doesn't wander off it. 
But this was how the Pharisees approached things. Rules, regulation, control. Cause people to tie themselves into knots so that we're good enough. And we, or to make sure that others around us are good enough. And as many of you probably know, that can get really weird really quick. Some of the most painful experiences people have with church come out of that space. Because in our desire to make sure we don't leave the narrow road, ironically, so often we miss it entirely. The rules, the control become more important than actually walking with Jesus and having a relationship with him. And so as a result... A dead faith exists with no fruit. But there's another trap here as well. The road that leads to life is narrow and few find it. So some people then say, so why should I try? Why should I really try? See, the temptation is then to just kind of hope we find it, but not actually really look for it. Say, I'm saved. I'm sure, I'm sure there might be a better way out there. Hopefully I stumble into it. But our indifference produces the same result as option one. We go through the motions and we experience a lackluster faith. If we get obsessed with just salvation, just being saved, which is an important thing, we can then go through the entirety of our faith life with this lackluster approach that, in which we don't actually experience the kingdom in many ways at all. And when we don't experience the kingdom, we don't actually experience the life that Jesus has to offer, it's very, very easy then to fall into a place of apathy, of just kind of not caring. It becomes clear then when Jesus says, wide is the road that leads to destruction and many enter by it. Because it's so easy to fall off in either of those directions, isn't it? You see, Jesus' words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount feel binary because they are. He's presenting his audience with a real choice. Maybe you believe the kingdom of heaven is around you, but if you actually want to experience it, you actually need to choose to follow Jesus. Jesus makes the declaration, the kingdom of heaven is all around you, but he then says each and every day you have to actively choose to take steps next to me. He says you'll know you're doing it, when you, you'll know if you're doing that because what you'll start to experience is all of this beautiful fruit that comes from a kingdom kind of life. But if you choose not to, to just assert intellectually to the fact that the kingdom might be there, he's like you're going to miss it entirely. You can do all the stuff, but if you don't actually engage with Jesus, then I never knew you. With all of that said, we acknowledge that taking your first steps on the narrow road are really scary. Like we saw in the picture, the narrow road is not as clear as the wide one appears to be. It doesn't feel as safe as the wide road appears to be. And honestly, it might not be, probably won't be. But when the storms of life rise around you, the wisdom of that way of life becomes clear really quickly. That those of us who are willing to engage and wrestle with what Jesus has to say, with those of us who are willing to, to deconstruct and reconstruct, to find who Jesus is and walk closely with him, we realize then when the storms come, we have something that persists. See, Jesus wants you to flourish. He wants you to succeed. He wants you to be strong enough to weather the storms of this world. 
It's easy to focus on the Bible as a series of rules or regulations that we need to follow in order to be good enough for God. But that's not what it is, not at all. And hopefully you've seen that through the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount begins by saying you are valuable. And so because of that, Jesus says, because I already value you, together let's walk to find life. It's at these moments that I think the, the metaphor the Bible uses as God as parent becomes really clear. Because we all love our kids, right? Or our grandkids or nieces, nephews, whatever it might be. And so what do we do for them? We ask them to do hard things because we know they'll be stronger because of it, right? That's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying there's a better way out there. I'm going to ask you to do some really hard things because I, it'll make you stronger in the long run. Jesus is inviting us on a hard journey down a narrow way. He promises that though the path isn't easy, it is the best. But whether you go with him or not is entirely up to you. It's a decision you have to make daily. When I wake up each morning, you have to ask, am I, am I willing to walk the narrow way today? Am I willing to walk with Jesus and wrestle things with, with things that might be difficult? See, wise is the one who hears my words and put them into practice, Jesus says. So you have to ask yourselves the question, are we willing to do that? This morning we're going to celebrate communion. Communion does a number of different things. It affirms the value that Jesus proclaims at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. That Jesus says, I loved you so much that I'm going to give my life for you. I loved you so much that, 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 I, that I'll do whatever it takes, including give my own life so that I can be near and close to you. Communion is a reminder that we're loved that much. It's a reminder of the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus says, you are valuable. But the other beautiful thing about communion is it says as we walk in this life, that, that we, as we walk the narrow road that Jesus has called us to, we don't do it alone. I love that we call communion communion because it's a shared table. It's a journey we walk together. When I, as I wrestle and you wrestle, we together try to find where this path is leading. The hard work that I do, hopefully, then, can help someone else do that hard work later so that we don't have our students calling us out and saying, if they don't do the work, how can they teach me? Communion is a place where we admit that we need each other, that we need Jesus and we need each other. It's the practice of admitting to ourselves that we all have brokenness in our lives. The declaration that we need Christ and the declaration that we need each other. Because each of us has fallen short in one way or another. And communion is a reminder that failure is not what defines us in Christ. Communion is a reminder that Christ has defeated death. And because of that, sin is no longer our master. Communion is an invitation to affirm or reaffirm the acceptance of that gift in our life. And so our table this morning is open to anyone who wants to accept the gift of Christ's love for us and begin following him today or to recommit to following him today. So in just a minute, I'm going to invite you to come forward. I've got gluten-free station up here as well, followed by the, the regular glutenized bread over there, so you can pick which one you want. 
I ask you as you come through, if you can come through either as a, you can come through individually or as a family, uh, take the elements and bring them back to your seat um, and just sit with them for a minute. Um, don't take them, we're gonna, this morning, what I, one of the things I want to do is I want to take them all together. So we'll, we'll distribute them back to your seat and then wait and we'll, we'll do it finally uh, at the end together. Because as we've talked through, through this whole thing, to find the narrow way is tricky and so we want to really hone in on the fact that we need each other today. So as you come to the table, I want to invite those of you who have chosen to follow Jesus or want to make that choice for the first time today. If you don't, that's fine. You can stay in your seat. We're still glad you're here. Because at the table, there is no Gentile or Jew. There's no circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other, just like Ellie said earlier as well. And forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Now hear these words from Luke 22, 14 through 20. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now, I won't eat this meal again until its meaning has been fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it amongst yourselves, for I'll not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took bread, and he broke it. And he says, this is my body broken for you. When you eat it, remember me. Likewise, he took wine and poured it. He says, this is my blood, a sign of a new covenant between me and you. When you drink it, remember me. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just pray this morning as we come to the table that we can focus again on your deep love for us. God, you've asked us to live a certain way, not because you want to hold us back, not because you want to control us, not so that we have to prove that we're worth it, but instead because we, you already see us as valuable and you want to see us flourish. God, your path is not the easiest. Sometimes it's really, really difficult. And it's scary, and Lord, we pray for the courage to be able to take the first steps down that narrow way. God, we pray that you open our hearts towards each other, that we realize that as we go down the narrow way, we don't go it alone. That we come together at the table under your headship, under, under your love, so that we can love each other in that way as well. Give us courage to take the steps we need to take this week. Give us courage each day to choose again to follow you. And then, God, we pray that amongst this community here, amongst the worlds that we live in, that, we, that we're able to see the beautiful fruit that comes when we choose to follow you. Amen.